This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the final third of J.R.R. Tolkien's 1954 novel, The Two Towers. I read a good bit of modern fantasy, and I feel like the story of Aragorn as secret king has been retold time and time again. People do different versions of that story, uh, and and obviously Tolkien's a huge inspiration for it. But I think that Frodo and Sam and their journey with the ring and, and that close friendship and bond they have is really the heart of Lord of the Rings. And I feel like I don't see this story told in modern fantasy as much as I should, because I think it's this is like, really, if you're going to borrow something, maybe this is the way to go. Totally agree with that. Do you think that this was the, the template for it? Do you think this was kind of the first time it was done? Or was he borrowing from someone else as well? Oh, I mean, we all borrow from each other. So <laughs> I'm sure that he, he was inspired by other things. You know, his own life, certainly. But um, stories stories seep into our society to where even if you don't, even if you haven't read Tolkien, you could still be affected by his work, you know, maybe right. saw the movie or, you know, but especially big zeitgeist type stories are just everywhere. And then the, I'm sure there were things like that around the time he was, he was around in writing this that, that he had absorbed. But uh, I don't think it's about like who's first, but like, I think it's about when you write a story and you have, and, and you have something to tell and you put your own spin on it and you do it in such a way that, that is a lasting, um, version of that story you know and i think this is that this is something that has inspired many people who have who've come afterwards and it's just to me it's like i've read a lot of fantasy that is about secret kings and about and about that kind of heritage thing and and the blood of royalty and and you know you can look at game of thrones you know and and i guess I won't say who, but there are characters in that in that series that have secret royal blood, right? And you could look at that as something kind of similar to Aragorn, maybe. But, you know, Fr Sam and Frodo is a very personal story of friends and uh, like a devotion to each other. And Sam uh, finding courage to def to defend his friend who's also doing something. He, he himself is doing something courageous, right? And trying to take the mm -hmm. ring. And so that's like, I think... Um, um, I don't see that as often. I don't know. I can't like no no one clear example comes to mind where I can say like, oh, obviously this was inspired by that. I'm sure they're they're out there. I'm just failing to come up with them off the top of my head. Is there anything you can think of? I mean, yeah, like you said, I, I'm sure there's one out there. Nothing's coming. Nothing's immediately springing to mind, though. I, I had a question about the about Sam specifically the, in our in our fellowship coverage. We talked about how there is. Uh, differences between the film and the book just in terms of Sam's kind of devotion to Frodo. There was like a servitude uh, that was going on. And I think that in the movie, it's at least in the book and in the movie, 
Fellowship of the Ring, it seems like it's more of a friendship. And I think that as we get into this book here, I wanted to get your take on it, but I felt like this leaned more, it feels like it went from servitude into friendship, and now it's like really more of just caring about him in no sort of like master servant or master whatever Sam is supposed to be way. You're right, though, because it is it is referred to that way. And he thinks of, of Frodo and he says, like, I never should have left my master and like stuff like that. Like he, he says some stuff like that. And that does put kind of an interesting twist on it. And in, in what is that supposed to be representing? To, I think to modern readers, that's going to seem really weird because we just didn't have a lot of relationships like that. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe that was less weird at the time. I, I don't really know. Um, I've always thought of them more as friends. But you're right. There is sort of like a formal arrangement here of of one being superior to the other um and what that means and and if if it's problematic I, I i don't know if i don't know that i've really thought about it enough but um that's something to think about maybe as we go into return of the king and continue to track this relationship and i can do some more reading about it did you see did you see any sort of transformation in the relationship though or do you think that yeah. it's kind of still the same as it was no, I agree. I mean like regardless of of what the pre-existing structure is for their relationship Clearly, they are friends, and um, they have a mutual respect for each other. Frodo's not just, like, uh, got Sam along to do his bidding and doesn't care. Like, Frodo deeply cares about Sam and vice versa. Mm -hmm. There's that line that I think specifically leans into that where Frodo was talking about how, uh, you know, when they're retelling the story of Frodo and Sam, how they'll say, like, tell me more about Sam because Frodo wouldn't wouldn't have ever gotten far without Sam. Yeah. And I think that's a big moment in the movie as well, but that's just huge. It speaks volumes to their relationship, I think. Right. Uh, so if it's not clear, we're covering the last third here of uh, the two towers. Uh, this this section is all Frodo, all Sam, and Gollum, and uh, I really enjoyed it, I, and and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, before we really get into it, we did want to announce that we just released our twelfth Patreon exclusive episode. Uh, this one was covering Pet Cemetery, the 1989 original adaptation. Which we both actually spoiler for the episode we both enjoyed, so I think yeah. it would be a fun listen if if you haven't heard that yet. Yeah, and we 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 break down uh, each character and we compare like the new versus the old uh, adaptation. Talk about which which versions we liked, which was split on some, and uh, yeah, we both had a lot of fun with it. But did it end up being a better adaptation to us than the the new one? You, you'll have to listen to find out. That's available on our Patreon feed. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And for as a uh, pledge as low as $2 a month, uh, you can get access to that and all of our other bonus content. And I want, we said it on the episode, but I wanted again to thank everybody for being patrons. That's 12 episodes is, is 12 months. So that's a full year of Patreon so far. So thank yeah. you guys for supporting us and helping us continue the podcast. All right, man. Are you ready to get into chapter three? I'm ready. It is called The Black Gates Are Closed. We have Frodo and Sam uh, approaching the gates to Mordor. There's a lot of talk about, like, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way, and then there is no other way. And then they're faced with this gate, and they're they're intimidated, and they say, we can't go through here. Now, this is, uh, they, they start to hear, like, sounds of trumpets, and they see movement, and they see some forces. And this is a, um... Another moment where Tolkien's uh, potentially problematic other men come in (laughs) and uh, they're described as men of, quote, other race coming from the east. They have dark faces and they've they've come to join forces with with Mordor raid against, uh, you know, Gondor and and all the, you know, quote unquote, good men we've seen. (laughs) Um, Now, there is a little bit later where Frodo 
thinks um, it comes later on where Frodo sees one of the men of the, from the east die and or, or in in a battle, and he thinks about how he's never seen men fight before and it's different, and he wonders like if they had hopes and dreams and and were they truly evil and all this stuff. So he does have moments where he thinks that way, but just the way this particular part was described felt a little problematic to me just right off the bat. Like I, I've talked about throughout our coverage, the, the movie is what I mostly think of. But yeah, when we get into the source material here, um, I'm, always, I'm always surprised to see this kind of stuff in there. Well, in, we've talked about uh, Tolkien's resistance to say that he's writing allegory. Uh, but, you know, this was written during the Second World War in which, you know, the Allies were at war with not only Germany, but also Japan. Um, and when he's talking about others from the East... Um, who are allying themselves with the you know forces of darkness? You know, it's possible that he could be doing some sort of like, and maybe he'll never admit to it, but maybe he was trying to imply that it was like the Japanese. I don't know. Um, and and like I, like we've said, uh, he 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 claims that he does not write allegory, um, but I think it's also obvious in his work that there is some allegorical elements. Could that have seeped into there? Uh, could it have been something left over from World War One, which he fought in? Uh, definitely possible. This is off topic and doesn't really necessarily go 100% with what we're talking about. Do you, but do you think that there's a way for someone, you know, he said that he, he wasn't a fan of allegory, but is it even possible to write a story in a vacuum without using any sort of allegory? I mean, no. And, and, and I think he, I think he says as much and it's forward to fellowship. He says like, we, we all, and I think that's his out, right? Like he says, all of us are, are our reflections of the time we live in and the, and the things that we come up in and like, that's going to be in our work, but I don't deliberately do it. And so I think that's his out to say like, yeah, it might be in there, but I didn't put it in there on purpose. Um, so take it with a grain of salt, but I think that's a huge out for him because he can basically, there's allegory all over the story in my opinion. Right. Uh, we do get a rhyme, a sort of a fun, like almost nursery rhyme about Oliphants, um, from Sam. And, and that ends this chapter, uh, it sounds in the, you know, they're hopeful that they might see one one day. And then of course they're going to, <laughs> what do you, what do you make of Oliphants in this, in this world? Like why, why wouldn't he just have them as elephants because they're bigger and, you know, yeah. used for war. I, like... I think they're, they're, I, I picture them more Mastodon like, um, and yeah, bigger, more war, warlike. Maybe he had the like good knowledge to realize that elephants, um, are not, very hostile creatures um they're actually mm -hmm. quite gentle um unless provoked and and so on and so forth extremely but, intelligent as well yeah and 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 maybe he thought like okay instead of instead of elephants i'm gonna i'm gonna invent a you know slightly more fantasy like also like there are some regular animals for sure in middle earth but a lot of things are different right a lot of things are sort of like a fantasy spin on something we we, we recognize so maybe that was him doing that um, also, uh, maybe he knew some el some oliphants are going to die in later battles, and he doesn't want people feeling bad for them <laughs> if they're like a fantasy version or feel less bad for them than they would, uh, you know, an elephant. So there's a there's a line where I guess it's not a line. It's kind of a passage where they're talking about the towers and gates were were actually built by the men of Gondor, but they've been used as watchtowers for Sauron now. And I just felt like that was something worth talking about because 
that that kind of like backstory and that lore is I think what adds even more to the fact that like a lot of things like the Palantir and and this this area apparently were, were like not inventions of Sauron, but he bends things to his will. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that lore, that reminds me, I was reading something and I and I was watching um or I was watching something and, and George R. R. Martin was talking about Tolkien and he was saying that Lord of the Rings to him is like an iceberg and the three books that we get are the tip of an iceberg that is contained under the water. You know what I mean? That whole like 10% and 90% metaphor and being the 90% being the lore and the world building and the language building and map making that Tolkien did for his world. Um, And then we just get this one story that only uses a certain amount of it, but it's all there. And he felt like when he wrote game of Thrones, he was pretending. He said, like, I was I was crafting the part you see, and it was nothing underneath, and it was an illusion. And he's felt like over the course of his career, he's been trying to build that underwater uh, lore, and so he's been adding, 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 and creating world and, and, and filling out his his world. And I just thought that was interesting that he felt that way, um, and, he, and he's been sort of chasing that depth of, of, of world that he felt like uh, Tolkien had. I don't know. Uh, and you've talked a lot about how the lore of, of Lord of the Rings really appeals to you. So um, you probably would agree with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that the amount of detail work that goes into this story is part of the reason why it's so absolutely um, just it, I, I can't shake it. It's it's always with me. If I think of a language being created for a show or anything, something like Dothraki, like you have to think about the fact, fact that Tolkien invented languages. He he wrote Elvish and, and created Elvish and along with many other uh, languages. And I, th- I think it's just part of it that, that sticks with me in that lore that you're able to keep diving into that uh, and, and continue to get like little morsels of knowledge and, and learn more and more. You, no one could ever know everything that he wrote and everything about Lord of the Rings because there's, it's just so dense and there's so much there. And I think it's interesting like with the TV show that's coming out where you try to expand on that, there it's so easy not that it's so easy but a lot of the work has been done and then you just have to tell a really great story within the parameters of everything else that he's already written right I, I, have you played the shadows of mordor games at all uh i played the first one I don't, there's like a sequel out right yeah i haven't played the second one either but i i plan to eventually i and i think it was interesting to get that perspective as well it was like the yeah can't remember exactly what it was but basically this the guy who crafted the ring was like bonded to a ranger of the time who had like his family was killed and and basically they team up together to kind of fight the forces of sauron well before you know if that was all canon we're getting way in the weeds now a little bit but (laughs) i think i think all of that counts as canon as far as you think it was okay i wasn't sure if that was something they made up for the game or not oh no they they made it up for the game but it's included it's not so it's not tolkien canon but it's within their universe within anything lord of the rings related i believe it's like canon as far as like fans are concerned. Okay, but it wasn't like something from the Silmarillion that they were retelling in the form of I don't think so but i'm sure that they referenced tons i'm sure that they used the Silmarillion as much as possible okay well, uh, we got to move on, man. Let's do chapter four. <laughs> We're only, do we only done one chapter. <laughs> All right. So chapter four is called Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. Uh, it's interesting how he, he does these with his titles. Like, it, you know, some of his titles are very like ominous and it's like she loves Lair and, and, and sort of foreboding. And then every now and then we get like Flotsam and Jetsam and we get Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. And, 
I think it kind of announces that this this section might not be as dramatic. I don't know if that's like uh, supposed to be meant as a a thing for the reader to to look forward to when they read. Like this is going to be a more chill chapter. Um, I don't know. Do you think he was thinking that sort of things when he chose these names, or was it more just like that's what happens in this chapter, so that's what I'm going to name it. I think that it's definitely intentional, and and like I I think that carries through as well. Like if you read a chapter, you you know how the tone of the chapter just from his titles. I would say. Yeah. I will also say this is something that has fallen out of fashion in fantasy, um, naming your chapters in this way. I think for a long time, a lot of people did it um, sort of maybe maybe following in Tolkien's tradition. I don't know. Uh, but nowadays, it, it seems like I don't I don't see this as often, at least. What, what what would it be instead? Just chapter one, chapter two or like some like a character's name? Yeah, just yeah, just chapter or or you could do like, uh, yeah, you could do like Martin name it after a character. Although I think mm-hmm. he 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 kind of popularized that. I may be wrong with that. Like, you know, I'm not an I'm not a historian of genre, so I can't say for certain. Um, I just know that uh, Tol- or, uh, Martin is a very popular version of like naming the chapters after a character whose point of view it is. Um, and then and then Tolkien is a very popular version of naming the chapter after like a phrase or something that that is topical for the what happens in the chapter itself. Some people view it as kind of a spoiler for the chapter. Um Maybe, and maybe that's why we don't do it as much in, in modern day. I'm not saying no one does it. I just, not mm-hmm. as frequently done. Uh, so of herbs and stewed rabbit uh, is, you know, appropriately about them being hungry, wanting food, food to eat. Uh, they're on the road. They, they've, they've tried to go another path. And Gollum is looking for food and he brings them um, a bunch of rabbits that he's, that he's caught. And Gollum wants them to eat them raw because he's he doesn't want them to light a fire because he thinks it's dangerous. Uh, but uh, Sam says we're not going to eat them raw. Not to mention that he thinks that cooking things ruins it. Like cooking the meat would ruin it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is uh, Sam. Sam is not feeling that. He wants to make a fire. Uh, we get him talking about potatoes, which um, I'm glad is is a, is a book detail and not only something invented from the, from the movie because I like it in both. Uh, so it was fun mm-hmm. to see uh, Sam say that here. Um, he makes, he makes this rabbit stew and, uh, they have a feast essentially. They, they call it a feast compared to what they've been eating. And then he does realize that there, the smoke is, uh, more visible than he was worried and they get found out and he's worried at first, oh no, we've been found out by the orcs, but it comes, it's, it, it, it actually is these men who come up and, um, you know, draw down on them and, and, you know, wonder if they're spies of the enemy so forth. Uh, these men remind him of Boromir, and uh, we meet Faramir for the first time, who we learn soon is Boromir's brother. So Gollum slips away just as the men arrive, so he's he's absent, and, and, and Frodo and <clears throat> Sam are captured by these men and taken to their, basically their hidden lair. <laughs> On their way, they do witness a battle. This is what I referenced earlier. They, ref- they they witness a battle in which the men kill a bunch of the men from the east, and they they see the Oliphant for the first time, and it's a huge creature, and and Sam is 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 surprised to see it, and this is where Frodo wonders about the what evil may or may not lie in the hearts of these men, and and he seems like he's troubled by seeing this violence. So just to jump back to kind of the feast that they were having in terms of uh, fictional food. I think Lembus bread is up there with with one of the things that I crave for the most. I want to yeah. try Lembus bread so bad because they have the Lembus bread with their rabbit. I'm sure there are a bunch of uh, 
I'm sure there are a bunch of recipes online you can find for Limbus bread. You probably don't have that elvish magic in it, but that's what I was gonna say. Like, I don't want to try <laughs> it and not have it be the greatest thing ever, though. Well, it's not even supposed to be the greatest thing ever, right? It's supposed to be like it tastes good and it fills you up for like the entire day, just a small bite of it, and it stays good for for like months. Yeah, and it, yeah, it stays fresh. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, yeah, if anybody has a recipe for that kind of Limbus bread, I'm in, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a good way to lose weight. <laughs> yeah, you just eat a couple bites and you're good. On the Limbus diet, yeah. So, uh, Faramir, I really, really like Faramir, and I think that the, I, I kind of wish we had a little, I mean, I guess in the extended version, we do get a little more of him. In the movies, you mean? Faramir is a really fascinating character to me because he's he's one of the strongest men that we meet. He was, yeah. I would say he's up there with like Aragorn in terms of just willpower and like he's very noble as well. I I, I just think mm-hmm. that he's a fascinating character. Yeah, and I I feel like there was some changes. That's something I'm going to be tracking, um, watching the movie is what kind of changes they make to this character. Because because you're right, like noble and good hearted is is a really good way to describe Faramir from from this meeting of him at least that I'm getting here. He um, he doesn't start out necessarily like at first he is suspicious and and you think that he's you know gonna do something awful to Sam and Frodo, but he quickly, like, they, once he figures it out, he flips over and you can see how he actually feels. Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's get into that chapter because a lot of that happens here. Uh, chapter five is called The Window on the West. So Faramir and it has Frodo and he's frustrated that this hobbit is keeping things from him. He, he, can, he can sense that there's something that's being kept from him and he doesn't know what it is. Faramir actually reveals to Frodo that Boromir died. Because Frodo and Sam left before Boromir actually died, so they didn't know. And Faramir tells a story about how he was like on watch or something, and this boat came out of the mist, and he ran over and looked inside and saw Boromir's body there. And it was weighed down by all these swords, and and he right he saw like this elvish belt on him, and um, but otherwise he was clad in his normal attire. And then the boat just like swept past and, and headed on out, and he didn't stop it. Um, very odd, you know, thing to have happened, but this is, this is how he found out that his brother had died. And he, uh, so he reveals this to Frodo and Sam who didn't know and they're, and they're sort of taken aback by it. But I think Frodo's not also not super shocked. He he had been thinking about Boromir and it's, it seems like he, I, he definitely didn't know that Boromir was dead, but the way that it's yeah. revealed to him from Faramir, uh, I mean, it's affecting, and then and then the the revelation that the reason he knows is because he is is Boromir's brother. Also, in this chapter, he talks about actually seeing him float down the river. That, I mean, imagine that, like seeing your brother float down the river, and and yeah, and it's really weird. Actually, dead. and and that's how he found out. He saw his body just floating on the river. Now, Frodo then in turn tells Faramir about Gandalf's fall, and we we learned that uh, Faramir uh, talked. Uh, in their country, they know they know Gandalf as Mithrandel or Mithrandil, and mm-hmm. they think of him as a lore keeper. And uh, Faramir has says he's always suspected that he's more than that, and this is essentially confirmation that he is more than that. There is talk about Sildor's bane, this heirloom of power. He he has like a suspicion that this is what this is all about. I think uh, there was there was some rumors that that's why Boromir went to the, join the Fellowship and was summoned to. Uh, Elrond's council, and um, so it seems like Faramir's starting to put it together, and, and, and it's worrying um, Sam and Frodo because they don't want to be found out, and they're worried that he's going to try and take it. Um, so Faramir does blindfold them and take them the last mile down to their 
cavern, cavernous uh, lair and hideout. I should call it a hideout, not a lair. <laughs> lair <laughs> makes it sound evil. Their hideout. Um, although this is my podcasting lair. I won't <laughs> start calling it that from now on. It's my lair, um, but I'm so- not necessarily evil. <laughs> I'm not necessarily Shelob, but maybe I'm kind of like Shelob, the podcaster. <laughs> I mean, there's, um, there's spider webs everywhere, so imagine that. So they're treating the hobbits pretty well, other than blindfolding them because they don't trust them. Um, they take them to a room to rest, and they, they, they spend some time there. Um, now, at this time, we also hear that the men have almost caught Gollum. He's been slip, slipping by them, and... They know of this other creature that's that was found around them, and, and Faramir is, is suspicious of like what connection he could have. Um, they're talking together, and Faramir tells them a lot of lore behind uh, Gondor and its relationship to Rohan and the history of men in the in the world, and and um, it's sort of info dumpy, but I think it's all really interesting. It's like it's like uh, filling filling in the texture of, of the world and and how these different groups of men relate to each other. It's always nice to get that refresher too, because it's it's so much more in depth than, than anything we get in the movie. So you really understand even more kind of how the inner workings of these these peoples work. Because, yeah. you know, the, the especially the fact that the the men of darkness, the what are they called, the Dunlanders, are, yeah. you know, not even really mentioned in the in the movie. So kind of getting that as well as something can, you can bring to the films. Uh, and, and when I say info dumpy, I'm not trying to be critical. I think... Um, this is a term that, you know, if you if you start learning about writing, people will often talk about in workshops and they'll bring up and they'll say, oh, this was an info dump here. And um, they mean it as a criticism. They're saying, like, I wasn't it was you dumped all this information on me that I didn't need. And you can usually you can cut it back. Um, but I think this is an example of it done right, because it's coming it's coming very far into the story at a time in which we are genuinely curious about this sort of thing so if you can Mm -hmm. ever create a curiosity in the reader that's genuine and is not contrived they genuinely are curious about something here and then you can provide it to them um that in that sense like yes maybe it does on the page look like an info dump but you're actually fulfilling like a desire in the reader like they want to know this stuff and in that sense you can you can get away with this sort of thing if you want to think of it that way and it can be effective and in, in, in this section here, we learn that a lot of the men potentially, you know, the elves and men have grown up further and further apart. And some men think of elves as dangerous. And then Sam like pipes up and he starts talking about Galadriel. And yeah, I, I think that that, again, is something interesting to think about is that, I mean, if I'm in this universe and I know that elves exist, I'm trying to get as close and, and like learn as much from elves as possible. Um, and it's just interesting to know that they seem distrustful of them though. Yeah. This, they're distrustful and then they're, yeah. they're, you know, they could really use the elves help, but at this point the elves aren't, there's no connection really to there, you know, there's a couple as we'll see there, there's no connection for them to really help out all that much. And they're, you know, they're on their way out of middle earth. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think there is sort of a, I mean, you look at the Hobbit as well and the battle of five armies and and this and you there's definitely themes about you know the races distrusting each other and then um, needing to come together and if you take that as a racial thing uh for our world um it's interesting to see that alongside particularly problematic things um and and you know i think a lot of people are tired of uh allegory for for racial relations because they're saying you know like 
it's it's so easy for writers, especially white writers, to say like, oh, you know, I'm doing a, a racial allegory and having dwarves and elves and or you know, insert in, in, invented race, but there actually aren't any people of color in my story um, because they're all allegorical, and and people are calling bullshit on that. And I think rightfully so. Um, however, I I mean, I think in the '50s this was still sort of a newer thing to be doing, somewhat, and I think. Uh, I think it's it's okay to look at this and, and see some value in that for its time while recognizing that it's not maybe a blueprint for how to go forward. Yeah, I mean, definitely agreed. So just to finish out the chapter, Sam reveals that Boromir wanted the ring um, in sort of a slip of the tongue. And, you know, he's like, oh, I've opened my big mouth. I'm, you know, a fool. This is re- revealed to Faramir that there is a ring and that the ring is the Sealdor's bane. And that Boromir tried to steal the ring. Uh, this is where Faramir comes out and says, like, I don't desire it. If it was left on the ground and I found it along the road, I wouldn't pick it up. Do we believe him? Maybe. Also, like, that's how he feels. Would the ring allow him to do it? I don't know. So that's the thing. Like, there, you can have a good heart and you can be honorable. But, like, when the ring's power is on you, who knows what will actually happen? I do. I do believe that he feels that way. But like you say, yeah, I mean, circumstances can change things. But in terms of him just being not not actually desiring it, I believe that. So Faramir uh, says that he respects the hobbits. He respects their mission. Um, and this is where he actually learns like what the real purpose of the fellowship was. And he says, you know, I don't even want to see the ring. You can keep it. Um, I'm not going to ask for it. And he asks Frodo, what do you, what is it you want to do? And Frodo basically reveals like he wants to continue on into Mordor alone, him and Sam, and to complete their mission. And then that, that's the end of the chapter. And I did want to ask you, do you think that the ring compels Sam to speak up and to like the slip of the tongue that we have here where he accidentally reveals the ring? Is that the magic of the ring or is that just Sam kind of fumbling? Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I think you can read it either way is correct, I would say. Um, I like the idea of it being the ring, though. I think that's more interesting. Yeah, I was reading into it a little bit because it it, it um, the way he described it, I can't remember the exact um, phrasing, but there was there was some stuff to imply that like it just kind of came out of him and he didn't know why he said it. And whenever I hear that and I know that there's the effect of the ring, it makes me think like maybe we're supposed to read into like the, the they gave him a nudge. And just because the ring wants to be discovered, right, like it wants people to know about it. And, and maybe it thinks through Faramir it can get free because the ring doesn't want to be destroyed. And um, I think it's, it is interesting to remember that, that it does have sort of a, like a goal to be found and a goal to be returned to its master. Yeah. And, and I guess he did leave it up to like, like Faramir uses context clues to figure out Isildur's bane and, and a ring it means, you know, the ring of Sauron, the one ring. And he's like not interested in it because he realizes the danger of it. Right. So, yeah, it's not like Sam out and out says, like, we have the Sauron's ring. He just mentions an enemy's ring. So, yeah, I think it very well could have been some sort of influence. All right. So chapter six is called The Forgotten Pool. So Faramir wakes up Frodo and takes him to uh, a place within their hidden, their hideout that has this pool. He takes And as he takes them, Sam sort of secretly follows after them. And uh, when they arrive, they see the creature Gollum is below, and he's sort of uh, in the pool swimming around. And Frodo commands them all not to shoot, or requests them all not to shoot, tells them not to. (laughs) Um, And this is where Frodo finally reveals, because Faramir's like, why not? This is obviously a creature of the enemy. And Frodo says, well, Gollum once once bore the ring. 
and uh and now he's he's been helping us with with uh he's been our guide essentially and he says uh he's only after fish and he's not he's not down here spying on you uh so frodo agrees to go down to talk to Gollum, and when he goes down there he tries to convince uh Gollum that he needs to leave and while he's trying to convince him the men sneak up behind Gollum and capture him and this is a uh, Gollum. Gollum feels like he's been betrayed by Frodo here, and is like c- calling out. And I think I think Frodo had basically successfully convinced Gollum and or Smeagol, and they were heading back. And then that's when they jumped on him. So he does kind of betray him here, which is unfortunate uh, because I think that that's like a clear catalyst to what happens next. Although it, it seemed like he was on his way. Gollum, yeah, Gollum was already planning it. It seems like because we've already had mention of her and and all this stuff. So who yeah. knows? Yeah, I, I do think it adds some. It definitely adds some fuel to the fire, though, right? Yeah, the the last um, one of the chapters, the the one with um, the feast that they were having, we kind of get um, even even the relationship between Gollum and Sam is getting better. It seems, uh, or I guess Smeagol, Sam and Smeagol, because he like you know he asks him to go get rabbit, and he goes and gets rabbit for them, yeah. and and like you know even though they disagree on how to cook it, I think that there is like some bonding going on there, or at least some character development between the two and then you know you that carries over to the betrayal here and then you know i think it kind of solidifies everything that goes down from here yeah and sam but the sam does always have this suspicion of Gollum that is like persistent and he calls them um he says there's two parts to him and he calls them slinker and stinker uh which yeah. i thought was funny because like i guess stinker is the like Gollum, and slinker is smeagol and yeah. um you know, obviously both bad. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, the, all the implications of what those names could mean. Um, but yeah, so I agree. It's like, it's like maybe he's, he's not quite as suspicious of Gollum in these moments, but he, he sort of always is. No, I think uh, he's, I think he's still suspicious. I just think that there is like a, there is like a bond forming that you could see maybe this story progressing a different way. And, and like, you know, th- I think a part of I I know that like deep down Smeagol wants to be free of the ring, but Gollum would never let that happen. At least I think I think that there's something really deep down. Not that we ever really see it, but you would think that he would want to be free of it. And, and but like Sam clearly is always suspicious. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I I I my read of it was always that that Smeagol and Gollum both want the ring, um, but Smeagol cares more about people and doing okay you know maybe not good things but like decent things whereas Gollum is like fully been twisted by the ring and he he wants it at all costs and and has no honor and no no care um but I always felt like they were united in both wanting the ring I think I mean I think you're correct for sure they definitely they definitely both clearly want the ring and externally say that but I think that I mean as far as I I'm concerned like in like every character has like a redeemable maybe like thought in the back of their mind and i think that like given the chance if if smeagol could be free of the ring and Gollum potentially i i don't know like is there is there is there a version in an alternate world where where we do see smeagol come like fight back against this this influence that he's able to actually break all like his entire motivation basically probably not but i don't know i like to think about like at least there's like there's got to be some some pure goodness deep down and inside of him I'd love to know what our listeners think of that. Um, definitely email us if you have thoughts on on whether or not you think, if you think that Smeagol in some ways would like to be free of the ring, and and has some goodness deep down. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd like to know that. 
Um, so Faramir is talking to Frodo and Gollum here, and essentially he he says, you know, Frodo, you're free to go. Um, I'm I'm calling you a friend of Gondor, and you you can pass through our lands freely, and I'm going to allow you to take Gollum, and as long as he's with you, we won't kill him. Um, and this has all kind of been negotiated between the two of them. And uh, Gollum has to agree that he won't ever reveal the location of this. And he does. And um, it's kind of interesting that they trust him here, but they do. And uh, they don't really trust him, but they trust Frodo, I guess. Yeah, and, and Frodo says, what, what does he say specifically about how he he's like taking responsibility? He's taking responsibility for Gollum. There's a specific wording that they say that he agrees to. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they, yeah, like, it's going to reflect badly on Frodo, I guess, if, if if Gollum does end up doing something. Also, if Gollum is ever found not with Frodo, like, he's going to be killed on sight, he says. Right. Um, so they talk a lot about, like, where they're going to go, and Faramir keeps warning them, like, I don't know if I'd follow this creature. Um, he doesn't seem to be trustworthy. And uh, Sam agrees, but they both don't really have also, like, another good path. There's no good way into Mordor. And um, Gollum seems to know that this high path and, and, and Faramir is aware of it. And he's like, yeah, it's dangerous. They, there's like whispers of dark things there, but it is probably better than trying to go through the gate, which you can't do. And it seems like those yeah. are like the only two real options. I like the excuse, so, not, not excuse, but I like the explanation of why they could sneak into Mordor because Sauron's really only he's really only guarding against an army he's not worried about people slipping through he's really only preparing for armies marching on mordor faramir also then tells of of the nine riders who have issued forth from the gates of horror recently and it seems like um seems like mordor is like on the march and and they they're sending out their forces and so he says that sauron is is kind of focused on that and and he might you you might be able to slip through on this high pass uh if you're lucky um, so Frodo asks, uh, basically like, you know, is there any other way I can possibly go? If so, tell me. And, and nobody has a good answer for him. So he says, okay, we're going to go this way. And, uh, they, they get ready to leave. And that's the end of that chapter. All right. So chapter seven is called journey to the crossroads. There is warnings that the, the land is silent and it seems like ominous. Um, they leave and they go out into the woods and they have their last parting of the ways Um, And this is where I said um, it really feels to me like Faramir is a good guy here. And he has he has their good intentions in mind. He's been honorable in his dealings with them. He's been fair. He listened to them when they said not to kill Gollum. And overall, I'm just impressed with Faramir in the book. Um, And I'm trying to remember, but I felt like there was some different vibes from that character in the movie. Um, I'll be interested to see it again because I I do feel like Two Towers... um, has been one of the one of the Lord of the Rings films that I've seen the least. Um, I've definitely seen it multiple times, but it's been a while, so I'm curious to see how that goes. Yeah, I would. Say, I I think that he he follows along the same lines. I think he's definitely very honorable and he's very. I I think it's very similar. I, I, I just felt like I didn't trust him as much in the movie. I I remember feeling like oh, I don't know if I trust this guy. That's the intention too. I think at first, and then yeah. and then you know like going into Return of the King, what goes on with Faramir. Um, We'll we'll track that later, but I I think okay. that out and out he's an honorable and good guy. Uh, there's a there's a line when Faramir's talking about Boromir, and this is a little bit ago, but he says that eleven days before that day that they're talking, he heard the distant call of a horn from the north, and the sound was familiar because the horn was the heirloom of 
of his house and it was Boromir blowing the horn. And I thought it was interesting to think that like from that far away, it was like an echo or like a call that they were able to hear. And that's clearly yeah. like supernatural in some way because yeah, you can't hear like a horn it, right? that far away. And I just thought that that's yeah. great. That's that's really cool to like line up the stories and kind of know what's going on 11 days ago for Faramir and line all that stuff up. Yeah. So this is a, this is a heavy travel chapter here. We get more of them going through the uh, terrain. We get a lot of talk of like descriptions. There's even uh, talk about like the trees and the flowers and, and how everything looks. Um, at one point, Gollum disappears and they're worried that he's not going to come back. But then they hear sort of drums and a rumbling sound in the distance. And and uh, at one point, Sam does say, where there's life, there's hope, as my gaffer used to say. And that made me laugh because we talked about the gaffer last, last episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you got to have a gaffer to, to give you hope every now and then. Our gaffer <laughs> saying. Um, so Gollum eventually returns and he wakes them up and he says like, we need to go now. He seems like he's adamant that they have to move now. Like maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the orcs are coming. So they head stealthily up these, into these mountains and uh, they finally come to a crossroads. And at this crossroads, there's, there's a statues ruined and one of them is collapsed and it's a statue of this, uh, man, it seems like, and there's flowers growing on the brow of this head that's on the ground and it looks like a crown. And uh, Frodo and Sam take this to be like a sign of, of, of good things to come. And that's the end of that chapter. All right, so let's roll right along to chapter eight, which is called The Stairs of Sirith Ungol, which I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. But I, th- I think um, that's right. Is it? You think? Yeah, okay. I think so. But, you know, I could be wrong as well. I'm just sounding it out phonetically. Um, so they view the ruined city of uh, Minas Morgul. And there's, this is really, it's actually described really cool way. Um, there's like luminous towers that are filled with corpse light, like reminiscent of what they saw in the marshes. Um, it seems like this really haunted evil place. And uh, I'm just thinking of like how they realized that in the film. And I'm even more impressed with it now. Um, that that is like they were, yeah, they were inspired by this description that we read here in this chapter. Yeah. And it stinks too. Yeah. It's got the smell. There's talk about a, there's talk about like a vile river that flows through it that they that like you it's like poison you can't drink from it and all this stuff. And this um, is really like I think it's out and out just described as the city of the ring race, right? Yeah, you know what this also made me think of? Undercity from World of Warcraft. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know? I can see like that, I, yeah. Or just like a lot of these sort of um cities of the dead and and dark places um I think in, in fantasy have been inspired by by this. Yeah. Frodo is kind of moving slow at this point, and he's feeling this call towards Minas Morgul. And there's as they're as they're going and they're trying to go the sideway, a red flash and light erupts from the the city, and it seems like there's an explosion and there's a lot of like crying and, and noise. All of a sudden the gates open and a whole army issues forth clad in black. And at the head rises a thing with a crown on its hood, and uh, it looks like a Wraith Lord. And uh, this is, uh, I assume, the Witch King that we're seeing here for the first time. Right. I think it, I have wrote down a line here, the Haggard King whose cold hand had smitten down the ring bearer with his deadly knife. So I think it's the same one that stabbed uh, Frodo in Fellowship. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Yeah. So he has this like connection with him and maybe that's why he's feeling this pool. He says he feels this pressure that, that is just like ever on him and through the ring. And he feels his his hand actually reach toward the ring without his will um, to do it. And at, at the head of this great host is the Witch King, who is headed forth towards uh, the ford of Osgiliath. 
and the city closes behind them and they eventually leave and he's able to resist and i don't think he puts the ring on so uh, he's able to resist the will of it yeah well i think in large part because instead of grabbing the ring his hand goes to the jewel galadriel gave to him in lothor lorian oh so he grabs right. yeah, that yeah. and i think that that kind of like saves him from the temptation the magic of the elves seems to be one of the few things that can sort of offset the power of this of this uh, artifact. The hobbits then continue to climb the tall stair, and at last, at last they reach the very top, and they're tired, and um, they're exhausted, and they're beaten up, and they're worn out, and then Gollum reveals, actually, there's a longer stair next. It's even more to go. I love this part. It's so He's you such know, a little oh, conniving little asshole. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, this is where they do see the, a black tower that's described as having horns and a red light. And uh, they, they keep worrying about the eye watching them. And so this was interesting because I always felt like um, the eye on top of the tower in Lord of the Rings felt like a creative license to me. Like I, I always suspected that it wasn't really described that way in the book. And I think that is still kind of true. But I can also see why they chose to show it in this way um in in the in the movie what what is your take on that like is there actually a giant eye atop a tower in the books that's looking around i don't no 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 but i think that it's supposed to be the essence of sauron and and it is there is something it is able to watch basically not not physically watch and there's not an actual eye but i think in terms of just communicating to an audience in a film the uh, it's very effective way to do it having the actual eye be there and you know it's described in the books as an eye that's looking around they're like they feel the eye on them so i think it makes sense it works yeah they do talk about it being turned west and turned this way and like all this stuff so um i can see why they why they chose to put it put it on on screen that way is is bizarre as it might seem um so they rest and they eat a meal and they talk about old tales and adventures and this is you referenced this earlier and they talk about like i I wonder if we'll ever you know if they'll ever tell a tale about us and and because sam's saying that in the tales that really mattered um that they had to go through a lot of trial and that they don't get the things they want and it's always dangerous and and those are the 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 sort of tales that really stick with you and he says you know i wonder what sort of tale we've landed into and to me this is interesting because it's also very meta Mm -hmm. this is a very like uh i mean obviously we're reading a story about them and so you're immediately put in the sense of like oh you guys are in a tale and i'm reading about it now and i and and it's also kind of speaking to us and saying like what kind of story is this? Do you think it's going to have a happy ending? Like what, what do you think is ahead for them? And, and sort of it it invites you to think of it as a story and what kind of story is it? Um, Which I think is an interesting moment, right? For this, for this series. This is a high point to me in the story in general. Uh, Mm -hmm. This talk of kind of the stories that will be told. And you know, the, the line that I talked about that Frodo says to Sam is huge for me. I really love how he transitioned into this by talking about like an item that they, I forget which one it was, but it's like something that they had from an old tale that they're now carrying. And so like the, the, the story is still ongoing and continuing and they're just a small part of that story. And then uh, the moment where, you know, they're, and they're having a good time, like saying like, oh, and they'll mention this about you, Frodo, and they'll mention this about you, Sam. Uh, but then Frodo makes the point of being like, well, we're still in the da- most dangerous part of all of this. So like we have to we have to still push forward and finish our quest if, if there is any tale to tell, basically. Yeah. Um, so I found myself thinking about the effect, you no, know, because obviously Tolkien is sort of a, a forefather of a lot of um, fantasy that has come after. And I was thinking that this could have some sort of uh, DNA, uh, some of the DNA of uh, Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind and his Kingkiller uh, series 
um, could could come back to this moment, right? Because I think this is sort of an invitation to think about storytelling and meta analysis of like we're in the story, we're talking about our roles in it, and this moment that we both agree is very good. I can see that maybe some of that, you know, by design or or not, could have led to the sort of book that we get in the name of the wind, which is very much this like about stories and and the role of stories and i won't spoil it but yeah i was gonna say don't say too much because i I was in the process of reading that when we when we started this podcast so i stopped reading it so that once we covered it it would be fresh i got like halfway or three-fourths of the way done with the first book oh cool uh that'll be really fun because that is being adapted from everything i've heard i mean there's no trailers out or anything and I, i don't think there's a release date but um that's coming so that is something that i know that uh we're definitely gonna be eyeing and wanting to cover when it comes around so uh, but anyway yeah it'll be interesting if we can remember to try and think back to this moment in the two towers and and see if we can feel like that it was an inspiration in any way so sam is uh says that he is still worried about stinker here and he's worried about Gollum, and he's becoming more and more distrustful as they continue to go up and up the stair and at one point uh smeagol comes up and 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 touches frodo wakes them both Sam is angry at him, and, and Smeagol gets angry back at being questioned. And finally, they've come to the pass, and uh, Frodo says, Okay, Gollum, you've taken us this far. This is as far as we needed you to take us. You're free to go. And then Gollum says, Oh, no, 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 not yet. I need to go with you through this pass. And that's the end of Chapter 8. And it's wild because it's like, Gollum's free. He's full-on free. And he, you know, I mean, we know what's going to happen, obviously, but that's such a big moment in, in terms of the story because it's like, that's our huge red flag. That's the huge red flag to any reader that that isn't familiar with the story. You know, it's like obviously right. he's talked about her and all this other stuff, but I, it just surprises me that he wouldn't leave and then also follow still. And then yeah. you know what I mean? They're heading down the path already. Why not leave and let them take like let all this stuff go down? Which ultimately kind of is what happens. Well, here we are. Chapter nine is called Shelob's Lair. They come upon a hole that is filled with a vile smell, and they go inside of it, and it's said to be utter darkness. They can feel stuff touching them in the dark, and it's very evocative as they're walking through this dark tunnel. Gollum has disappeared um, at this point, and like you said, and then they start to hear this hissing sound in the darkness. Um, so Sam is actually the one who reminds Frodo of the fire of Galadriel that was given to him. And, uh, you know, for to, to light your path in dark places where, where all, the, all the lights go out, whatever the exact quote is, which I'm failing to remember. I'm close to it, though. <laughs> it's close, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A light in dark places when all other lights go out or something like that, right? Like, I'm close. I think that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty close. If that's not it, yeah. <laughs> so one, one thing real quick that I did want to mention, just because it's the, the one, one tiny little reference. Uh, Sam, realizing that this is a trap, finds himself wishing Tom Bombadil was there. And I thought that was interesting because that's a little shit. He's like mentioning Bombadil. And I was like, holy yeah. shit, if Bombadil was here, like this would be a little a little battle that goes down. What would Bombadil do? Yeah. Um, interesting to think about for sure. Um, so when they light up the fire, um, which they call it, you know, it's like a, it's like a, it's interesting how that, how it's, it's actually, it's the star, it's the fire of Galadriel. It's, it's like a file too. So um, they light it up, and, and in the reflection, it seems like they can see these horrible eyes appear. And Frodo raises the fire, draws his sword, and there's blue fire, like, shimmering along the blade, and it looks really cool. Um, and this is a moment that I'm sure has inspired just tons of fan art, right? <laughs> and uh, 
Frodo approaches the eyes, and and, and he's so fearsome, and, and the, um, Shelob has never seen anything like this, that Shelob actually shrinks away and just, like, leaves. Um, and they think that they've driven off this creature. So they continue on, and they see this web all around them. They start to realize that that's what they were feeling. And at first, Sam's just like, ah, oh, some cobwebs. What's the big deal? Like, I've seen these all the time. And then he realizes that they're actually really strong, and you can't break them. And, and it takes the sword to cut through the web. And he's like, okay, this is actually going to be a problem. This is really hard to get through. And all of a sudden, we get this omniscient talk about Shelob and the history of this creature. And this is something that I do love about omniscient storytelling that can happen, that we can't get in any other way. Because Shelob's not going to come down and tell us her story. You know, she doesn't She doesn't have the ability to do that. She doesn't speak. Although I think she speaks in, like, one of the cartoons. Um, but... In this version, you know, we the way to tell it is through an omniscient thing. And we learn that Shelob is ancient. She's been there since before Sauron. She she came from like the distant lands of, uh, you know, and, and she you know loves to eat. Men and elves are like her favorite thing in the world to eat. And um, now she lives here and Sauron actually has this like understanding. Like he knows that Shelob lives in this path and he's OK with it because she becomes like kind of a guard for this path. And she feasts on um, orcs now and again, but he's like, ah, oh, it's okay. I have a lot of orcs. I'm okay with that. And then also he sends prisoners to her and like feeds, you know, which, you know, I'm assuming are like men and elves. So every now and then to keep her happy, he sends them. And Shelob is just like this, this force of just like pure evil um, that said that she only wants, like her only desire is for blood and to like have a meal and she doesn't care about anything. And she's she, she is like sick of the orcs because they don't taste very good, and she wants like a sweet treat. Um, we also learn that Gollum uh, has has like met her before and like bowed to her and and like somehow showed supplication. And I guess because he's so like thin and spindly that she didn't think of him as a meal. And he's able to have this connection where he he uh, was very subservient to her, and and so now he's bringing her Frodo and Sam as his morsels, and that's what she thinks. Like, oh, he's brought me these these things to eat. Um, so I don't know, it's just really interesting and you get a little bit of the mind of Shelob, which is this like otherworldly predatory mind, but it, it does have some intelligence to it. And the idea of the, of the orcs being sort of sacrificed to Shelob from Sauron, like that's all stuff you can't get in the movie. And sending the prisoners there is like an awful, an awful sentence. I, I have a couple of things on, on Shelob. The first being, I mean, how many times have we gotten giant spiders in fantasy at this point? Now, oh yeah. After oh, this. this has been a huge inspiration. Uh, for and, that. But it is like you think of it as like the, like maybe I don't know if this is the first time, but let's just say that this is one of the one of the first times. It's an awful, awful, awful creature to have to fight. It's it's like yeah. a, a giant spider that cobwebs you can only cut with a sword, and it, that's horrifying. And and obviously that's why it's been duplicated. Well, and she's also said to be sort of the mother of like all these spiders that are throughout the world. These giant, fearsome spiders all throughout Middle Earth. Like all came from her. Right. And um, she's like the ultimate. So she's also like the final boss spider <laughs> that you can yeah. see in like a million games. You know, Dark Souls so, 2, I think, has a giant spider boss. And it seems like almost a fantasy cliche at this point. But this is why. Yeah. So speaking, you brought up games. This is something I wanted to talk about. So I don't know a ton about this because this is from the sequel. And, and if you are interested in playing the, I think it's uh shadows of war is the second shadows of mordor game so if you're gonna okay. play that and you care about spoilers i skip ahead like i don't know 30 seconds or so but i and one of the trailers i saw that she has like a shelob has a human form 
so she's like she, she in within that game i don't know I, I don't i just don't really know how i feel about that but she she has like a human form and is talking yeah i don't think that's i don't think that's true from from what i read here no i don't think so either but interesting to think about that like if you want to bring that context of those games which i'm i think they're canon if they're not sorry for bringing any of it up but <laughs> that they, <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly sure that they've basically said that they're canon uh interesting to think that they would take somebody like this some this like creature like you're talking about that's like lusting for blood and then give like some sort of motivations and and she's clearly talking so well and there's also like when you say they're canon like there is no real ongoing canon well i guess there is um but like is it is it still is it possible to still modify it if you're not tolkien himself and then like who gets to say what is and isn't canon at this point um i think is probably an interesting question that is being litigated in one way maybe in the courts maybe not but between the tolkien estate and and you know video games and adaptations and the new tolkien biopic coming out which apparently they disavow so there's a lot of this that is probably going on and and uh, you know the there's probably been a lot of court cases about the IP of Lord of the Rings and who owns it and who and who can do what they want with it. You know, I do. I do think just to, just because you brought up the Tolkien estate, um, you know, disavowing that that Tolkien biopic, I think that they also weren't fully on board with with uh, with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings adaptations. Yeah. So like from the get go. So it's they, I think they just say no to everything or disavow everything because it's not coming specifically from them and they want some kind of control. Well, and didn't, um, didn't his son, which I should look, I should have looked into this more, but didn't, uh, Tolkien's son help finish the, the like new quote unquote book we got from Tolkien like last year. I think year? so. I think so. Yeah. There was, there's been a couple of extra books. It's like based off his notes and he kind of wrote it, but yeah. Uh, anyway, interesting to think about. So Shelob here is described as being a bloated, having this bag of a belly has long body that's like covered in horns and like an armor of carapace um described as really truly horrific and um when sam sees shelob he cries out and um he's trying to warn frodo um and but then uh he gets tripped and tackled by Gollum, who is like you know finally i can i can take out the slow fat one and um he starts saying things like i've been i've been you know waiting to do this and stuff he's like whispering in sam's ear and then sam is able to wriggle free knock Gollum with his staff which breaks and um he goes to like kill Gollum, but Gollum is able to scramble away and actually escape and um sam's pursuing him sword in hand he's like i'm gonna kill you Gollum. and then he realizes oh shit frodo is back there with with uh Shelob, and he turns around and runs back towards Frodo. And then that's the end of chapter nine. Okay, so let's just get right into chapter 10. So the chapter 10 is called The Choices of Master Samwise. So Shelob, when he, when when Sam comes up, is like standing over Frodo, who who has been wrapped up in the cords of uh, Spiderweb. Sam spring forward, springs forward, cuts a leg, then stabs an eye. Um, he's using uh, an elvish blade. And uh, he slashes his blade across her belly, and it says, unlike dragons... Um, this isn't a weak point for Shelob, which I thought was a nice callback to the Hobbit, actually. Right. Like, yeah, if this was Smog, this might have worked, but not Shelob. Um, yeah. Imagine Sam fighting Smog, Jesus. Yeah. She then tries to crush Sam by just, like, smashing down her giant body on top of him. But he raises his sword up and uses it as, like, a... I don't know what the word is, but, you know, he's like it's, like, braced, and he's able to, to use it so that she just impales herself on, on mm -hmm. the sword. I actually love how that was described as well because it was like she was stabbed through harder than any warrior would ever be able to because she brought her own she put all of her force into that like body slam into it. 
Yeah, yeah, she did it to herself, essentially. Um, so Sam actually says a bunch of words in Elven. He gets out the fire of Galadriel, and he says, come on, you filth, and he like he's like challenging her, and I thought this was like a truly epic, badass moment for Sam. And the light blazes up, and it burns her, like scorches her really badly, um, and he drives her away, and we hear that it's like she may have recovered from her wounds, um, but that is not tell that is not in the scope of this story to tell or something, which I thought was an interesting sort of meta moment again. But mm-hmm. um, so he doesn't actually kill Sheila, but he does defeat her, and uh, then he goes to Frodo, and he finds that he is uh, he appears to be dead. Do you want to talk about this fight anymore before we move on? I I love the fact that that Sam has this moment, and and what follows is like all of this is just just the the some of the best stuff that Sam is given to do, and and uh, this is part of the reason why I love Sam. Like, you know, he steps yeah. up when he needs to, and he's you know he's not the man, he's not the the Hobbit to step up and do this, but or at least at the beginning of the story. But you know, given the circumstances, like he's he's there, and and he's the you know he's the rock. So uh, so Sam thinks that Frodo's dead. He tries to wake him up, can't find him, feels his body, and he feels like cold. And uh, Sam actually thinks back to a vision he had in Lothlorien where he saw uh, Frodo laying there and him over top of him. And he realizes that like the rock that he sees near him was what he saw in the vision. He's like, this is the vision I had. And he actually like gives into grief and he's just overcome. And then he starts to think like, well, what do I do now? Like Frodo is dead. Um, and he thinks, well, I have to go on. I have to, I have to continue this journey. Like, that's why I was the fellowship was that if Frodo falls, like one of us would take up the ring afterwards. And so he thinks I have to go it alone. And he really hates Gollum at this point. He's thinking about how if he ever sees him again, he's going to kill him. And, um, he really debates a long time of, you know, like a long, long time, but like, it's not an easy decision. He really debates back and forth. Like, what should I actually do this? Should I take the ring? Should I take, you know, he thought he's going to take like Frodo's other gear because he's like, if I leave it here, then some orc's just going to take it. So I need to take it and, and, and he's he's dead and I can't do anything about it. Finally decides that's what he's got to do. And he takes everything and he leaves. And as he's at the end of the like tunnel out of there, he hears these orc voices just as he's getting ready to go. Move, he sees movement. He's like, oh, shit, I've been found out. And these orcs come come around and he puts on the ring in order to hide from the orcs. So it immediately goes vis- visible, uh, I'm sorry, invisible. And while he's invisible, uh, he, this is where we really get it described in a way that sounds just like the movie to me. He talks about how like everything's sort of gray, except for him, he feels uniquely visible and he feels like there's out there, there's an eye looking for him. Um, but he's also invisible f- to the orcs. And he hears them talking to each other as he's hiding. And they, they come across Frodo find the hobbit they call him a sp- this is the a spy we found here we're going to take the body and we're going to we're going to go um they head back towards uh their fortress and as they're going to leave sam pursues them and he overhears them talking and we get a discussion between two orcs uh shagrat and gorbag i believe they are and they start talking and they talk about how some fearsome warrior has clearly taken out Shelob or not, or has, 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 has emerged victorious from Shelob and that it couldn't be this one because this one um, was wrapped up and couldn't have done the damage. So there's another fearsome warrior out there and they're kind of worried about, and, and Sam has a moment where he actually kind of smiles because they're talking about how he must be a great elf warrior who, you know, is the strongest warrior we've ever seen. 
Yeah, they do. There is a lot of talk about like complaining about like where they're stationed, talking about the Nazgul and how he, meaning Sauron, like prefers them to the orcs. And it seems like there's a lot of like jealousy and sort of like in, like not infighting, but like um, these factions are sort of jealous of each other and, and resentful of each other. So there's a lot of talk about this Labors person who um, I'm only pronouncing it that way because this is in the audio book, which I listened to for part of this. Um, but it's spelled L-U-G. B U R Z, but that's yeah. Labors apparently. <laughs> that's not how I've ever read it before, but yeah, I, I, I'm sure it's right if it's in the audiobook. Yeah, I assume. Um, and uh, they're talking about how they're going to take they're going to take Frodo to Labors, but then they're like, maybe we shouldn't until until because Labors has been saying that there's like they need to find like a, um, there's there's spies in the in the in the on the stair. There's been whispers of these. So I want to take a second to think about this story if if J.R.R. Tolkien actually killed Frodo and Sam has to finish the journey alone. Right. Honestly, I think Sam could have done it as well. Um, maybe not alone, but it's an interesting thought. Well, I don't know, because because I feel like Frodo couldn't have done it alone. And so I don't know that either of them could have done it alone. I think I think it does take it takes both of them and their friendship for each other and sort of the like sharing of the burden. Oh, absolutely yeah i think um without the sharing of the burden i don't know that it would have that either of them would have been able to do it yeah that's that's definitely true they they wouldn't have but i i think that it's interesting to think of sam as being able to carry the burden just like frodo because you know we think yeah. frodo is special in some way but i think like roles reverse sam sam could have carried it as well and um yeah you know like you say i don't think that either of them could have done it alone though the taking on of the of the ring and feeling the weight of it and it's just such a big moment for Sam to to he's come so far at this point. And, um, you know, the fact that he the, the orcs are taking Frodo away, he you know, he feels like sick, to, sick about it. But he doesn't really realize that Frodo's still alive until they say do they mention it here when they're when they're taking him back or. Uh, yeah. So they're talking about, you know, what to do with the with this, you know, body they found and all this stuff and when they're going to tell the boars. And then um one of them thinks like, oh, well, he's just carrying food now. What does it matter? And the other one says, are you an idiot? Like, we've seen this before from from her. She po- she do- she does this where she poisons them and like paralyzes them, but they're not actually dead. They just look dead. And so they talk they talk about that. And all of a sudden, Sam's like, oh, shit, I, I thought he was dead. And I, and I shouldn't have listened to my head. I should have listened to my heart that told me that he wasn't dead. And, um, you know, what have I done? I'm a fool. He charges after them to try and 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 save Frodo, but um, he ends up being farther away than he than he thought essentially. And and right when he arrives, they are able to close this gate behind them, and he's shut outside. And uh, the the line that uh, says uh, Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy is the the final line of this book. And uh, then we get the end, um, and that's the end of the two towers. And I think it is like a big like cliffhanger, like right, like this is like oh shit, and he's definitely setting up the next book here. Yeah. And just to mention for for people who are more familiar with the movies, again, some of the stuff is is beyond the realm of the Two Towers film. Some of this is Return of the King scenes. Okay, yeah, I it all runs together for me, man. I can't remember what's in each movie. So I'm going to be curious to see what what of this is in Return of the King and what what's in Two Towers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're going to watch the movie this week, so I won't say anything and we'll just we'll see how we felt about it uh, being different. Yeah, don't reveal. We're about to watch it. So that'll be something I can track. (laughs) So, yeah, the moment that, that Frodo is still alive is is a huge cliffhanger, right? Like, yeah. again, he, he's hitting us with a pretty massive cliffhanger. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, it's smart. makes you want to read the next book. Um, I, so I wanted to recall, do you remember, 
back at the start of our fellowship coverage when we talked about Tolkien's biography. And there was mention of he felt a particular affection for these soldiers that he fought alongside that were these like rural, um, non-educated uh, like boys who were fighting in these wars, right? And he felt like a real affection for them. I think they were called like the Tommies or something, but I could be wrong with, about that, that phrase. And I was thinking about that when I, when I was thinking about this these moments here with Fro- Sam and Frodo, and Sam in particular really embodies that to me because he's 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 obviously like sort of a simple guy. He likes simple things in life. He doesn't consider himself very clever, and he just has like sort of a passion and a, and a and a goodness to him. But he is not actually um, like uh, he's not like Gandalf. He's not this all wise person, you know. He's and he's caught up in this thing that's like bigger than himself. And he has this moment where he fights something like Shelob, um, which is this evil monstrosity. And he's in this moment that he's like clearly in over his head. But he's able to do something heroic and, and something great and grand. And um, also the bond between him and Frodo is also very reminiscent of a bond between soldiers to me. So I, w- I just wonder like what you're what you think about about how that could play into these characters. Well, I mean, I love the 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 idea. I mean, it's it's you know it's very blatant, but the idea that you know massive deeds can come from someone small or within the story, like small stature, but you know maybe a metaphor for somebody who, like you were saying, is is like one of those soldiers, and like it's not they they could make the ultimate sacrifice, you know, for the greater good, and they could shine in a moment of glory and, and before it all ends. And I think that it's those things in Tolkien's story that make it, you know, it's it's as much as it isn't like a Game of Thrones where people are dying left and right, and it, it is kind of like that traditional hero's journey, I think that there's there, it's just something so pure to it. And I think it's like one of those things that just makes, I think as a reader, you can't help but think like I'm capable of anything. That's a good point. Yeah, it does. It's kind of empowering to think about. Uh, so so let's wrap up with um, just some general thoughts here about about this book as it compares to fellowship, you know, and and how we felt about it. And then uh, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll be ready to watch the movie, I think, next week. <laughs> I'll go first. Basically, I mean, I, I you know, I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book again. It's it's so much fun. And, and I think this time around, I was really thinking about the split nature of the first the first book and the second book. And just how I would love to see a version of this story that is crosscut, where we, you know, somebody. Re- oh, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's been a fan that, right. that has done that, put that together on the internet. <laughs> I'd love right. to, and I'd love to read that. I think that, I think that would be a really interesting way to experience this, this novel. Um, I mean, but like I said, just the stuff with Sam, Frodo, Gollum, it's, it's so fantastic, and and even, I mean, I feel like we're talking about how great that is, but the stuff with Aragorn. Gimli, Legolas, th- that story is also really captivating to me in the Battle of Helm's Deep. And I was actually surprised. I had forgotten how much this Two Towers novel bled into the stuff that happens early in, in Return of the King, the film. Yeah, so uh, I think for me, this mo- this book had definite highlights um, that I really enjoyed. But overall, I I didn't get quite the same feeling that I got from Fellowship. And, and, and like as things are getting darker and, and more troubling and, and farther and further away from from uh, Hobbiton and, and, and um, the Shire, that's to be expected. But one of the things I loved about reading Fellowship was those in early pages and there's sort of like a just really pastoral feeling and like a really warm feeling. 
I, I got a little bit of that from some of the sections here. Um, but this is a different kind of book and it feels a lot more, you know, martial in a way. And, you know, in, in the sense of like warfare, especially in the, in the Aragorn, Gimli, Gandalf chapters, um, there was some parts that dragged a little bit for me. Um, some of the pursuit early on, um, I like Treebeard, but some of those sections dragged a little bit for me. Um, but overall, like I got, I have huge respect for this series and a huge respect for, uh, what it has, what it has spawned, you know, and all the things that have come after it. And, uh, when we got to Frodo and Sam and especially this final bit with Shelob and stuff, it's like just some truly awesome storytelling, um, really exciting stuff. And yeah, when I, when I, when I was able to think about, you know, the, the themes of, of, you know, you know, small people being able to do great things and, and how that all played together. Um, it was it was a really good book, and um, yeah, one I really enjoyed. And I'm definitely excited to to get into the Return of the King um, when we do get to that. Which you know, who knows when that'll be? Um, hopefully, not too long from now. Yeah, I hope not. It's again like I, I felt going from fel- taking a year off from Fellowship to Two Towers was tough, but this is going to be tough yeah. again to to go to wait a little bit longer to do Return of the King. Not longer than a year, but I'm just saying for, to, to until yeah, we do, I mean, do do Return of the King. Yeah, we might we might not wait a year next time. We might be a lot sooner than that. Um that wasn't really by design. It just happened to be no. that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, interestingly enough. I do have something to say that you reminded me of is um yeah. and I guess I'd never really answered the question of it as compared to Fellowship, but um, I think the two towers and return of the King, once we get to it, I think that they just heighten that feeling that I feel from fellowship, but they heighten all the feelings that I feel about, like you were saying, the pastoral nature of the Shire and like leaving that, leaving that safe nest and the forming of the fellowship. It's just all of those feelings are heightened by the stuff that happens here. And ultimately, mm. like I still I think I think I still do enjoy fellowship more. Um, right. Just because it's it is that you carry the Shire in your heart with you throughout the story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I mean, I think for me, it's just the, the forming of the fellowship and the beginning of the journey and, the and uh, you know, the fall of Vormir, which I guess technically isn't in, in this in the first novel in fellowship novel. Uh, I just to me, that's like. I could watch that movie every day and I could read this. I could read fellowship all the time. This one, like I said, I'd love to read a, a version that's, that's kind of put together cross cutting between the, all of the storylines. Cool. I mean, I'm sure it's out there and if not, like you should do it cause you'd probably get a, a lot of upvotes on Reddit if you did. <laughs> oh, somebody's, somebody's done it like a million times over. I'm sure. <laughs> Join us next week when we, when we get into the Peter Jackson film, I'm sure there's a lot. I mean, like we've talked about the story a lot, but I'm sure there's a lot that went into the making of that movie there's a lot of decisions that were made by Peter Jackson, which we'll be able to weigh in on now with the full weight of like this book behind us and the full knowledge. Um, so I'm really excited to get into that. And hopefully you join us next week for that. Yeah, I, I cannot wait to get to this movie. And just for a little context for listeners, there was a point uh, in my Tolkien and Lord of the Rings love that that Two Towers was my favorite film. So it'll be interesting to explore that and kind of maybe talk about some of the reasons why uh i liked it so much at, at at that time and why maybe i changed it to fellowship eventually i think i think it'll be interesting for us to to keep an an open mind um going into the third movie as well and like because i think the process of reading these books and watching them together has really changed the way i look at these films and oh definitely it'll be yeah. interesting to kind of revisit that at the very end when we're done with all of this and say like now what is our favorite you know after in full weight of time absolutely true yeah I, I, it'll be interesting to see if like with all this new context or you know fresh context that we got from from this novel how i feel if i do feel differently about two towers 
So we just wanted to thank our patron, J.D. Cook. Um, I know he's a big Lord of the Rings fan. I'm, I'm friends with him on Facebook, and I see him posting Lord of the Rings stuff all the time. So shout out to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you so much for being a patron. Yeah, thank you so much. If you wanted to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those adding to film. And join our Council of Inklings. We had a we had an interesting, uh, what would you call that? Like death pool, I guess our death pool. Yeah, dead Deadpool um, for the most recent Game of Thrones episode. We had a we had a side bet. We had a side bet between James and I, and uh, I won. So you're you gonna owe me a Game of Thrones shirt. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna find you a nice one. I'll, I'm sure you'll post a picture once once you get it. So, uh, oh absolutely, does, that's the kind of stuff that we have in that Council of Inklings group. So join that. We have polls for potential projects and just other things like that. So check that out. Oh, so if you'd like to help out the podcast in a way that doesn't cost you anything, leaving us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast is actually super helpful. It's the best way to get the word out. Uh, let us know what you thought of this episode. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts, and thank you to Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. I'm so excited. We get to watch Two Towers this week. Uh, but until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>